0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Heredity Podcast. This week, we're looking at connectivity patterns in the rock lobster and scavenging for pigmentation genes in European crows. In its broadest terms, demographic connectivity is the degree of linkages between different populations of a species. It's important for evolutionary processes as well as those associated with population dynamics. And the demographic connectivity of the rock lobster is of great interest to resource managers in New Zealand, as it's their most economically important inshore species. But until now, tracking their movements has been difficult, due to their lengthy larval phase spent washing around the ocean, and had to be guessed at using mathematical models. Using sensitive genetic markers, Dr James Bell at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand has, along with his team, determined the movements of this species and found out that the earlier models were actually pretty accurate, allowing for more targeted conservation and management strategies. Here's James.
1: We tend to split connectivity into two main bits, the first being genetic connectivity, which broadly refers to the sharing of, kind of genes or DNA between populations and also, secondly, into what we call demographic connectivity, which is more about understanding how individuals um, are shared between populations at a a sort of short timescale. So in in the context of this work, we were actually able to try and estimate both genetic connectivity and this demographic connectivity.
0: Okay, and you mentioned that they sort of operate on different timescales.
1: Yeah, so generally genetic connectivity or the patterns that we often pick up when we're trying to measure genetic connectivity are kind of the patterns that have come about Uh, as a result of individuals being exchanged between populations over many, many generations, so it could be hundreds of generations, whereas demographic connectivity tends to um, be more focused on the more recent generations, so what's happening now to populations.
0: And so what makes this demographic connectivity difficult to figure out in a marine environment?
1: So in the marine environment, one of the real problems we have is because most organisms have a kind of two-stage life cycle where they're as adults they're big and we see them, um, whereas their reproductive stages are generally very small, um, so most organisms reproduce by larvae, and they tend to be highly dispersive in that they, they'll travel quite long distances. So what it means is it's actually really difficult for us to, to actually track them by eye. Um, so it's not like land animals where we can kind of follow things or radio track them. In the oceans, that, for most things, is really hard to do for their young. So genetic techniques offers us a, a, an opportunity to try and study that.
0: Okay, so um, tell me about this species then you were looking at, the rock lobster.
1: So the rock lobster, um, It's a, the, what we're working on is the New Zealand rock lobster, but um, the New Zealand rock lobster actually has a, a really wide um, distribution range. It's actually found as far across from um, Western Australia all the way across to the Chatham Islands, and that's about 10 degrees of latitude, maybe 5,500 kilometres roughly. So it's a really widespread species. Um, the other really interesting thing about it is it's one of the, it's the species with... One of the most longest known, sorry, larval phases. So the larvae float around in the ocean for up to 24 months before they settle back to the um, to the seabed and, and become adult lobsters. And just to put that in some kind of some kind of context, typically marine organisms have a, a larval dispersal phase which lasts for maybe I don't know four to four to six weeks max. The reason that we're particularly interested in it is obviously it's got these interesting kind of life history characteristics. Um, but also, it's a really important species within New Zealand commercially, worth about $230 million annually to the New Zealand economy. Um, it's our most important, almost economically valuable, inshore species. Um, it's also got quite um, high cultural significance as well, and it's kind of a, um, a favourite seafood species for, for most New Zealanders.
0: And going back to what you said about the, the incredibly long larval stage, um, during which it's just being presumably washed around the ocean, what do we currently understand about their demographic connectivity?
1: Well, the, the kind of cool thing about the rock the, Rostrum, and I guess it's, it's a, a feature of the fact that it is worth so much money, is we actually have quite a few models. Um, so there are quite a few mathematical models um, based on uh, ocean currents, larval lifespan, and, and what we know about the oceanography of, of New Zealand, that actually predict where all the larvae go. So one of the, the kind of cool things about our study is that we had a, a kind of model to begin with. What the plan was was for us to test that mathematical model with our genetic data to see if the two things tallied up. So we, we, we had a starting point, if you like, as to what we expected our patterns might show.
0: Okay, and you, and you tested that theory then. What did you find out about the um, genetic diversity and the connectivity?
1: Well, what what we would have expected, or probably most people would expect looking at the the rock lobster is because it has this really long-lived larvae, we wouldn't have expected really to have seen any genetic differences between any populations. We'd have expected all the larvae to have just been really well mixed up in the oceans and there to be no genetic differences. And in fact, that's what an earlier study found using um, different molecular markers, not so sensitive molecular markers as what we've used. Um, But what we actually found is some quite strong differences between some areas of New Zealand, some of the populations, and the levels of connectivity between them. Um, we found really strong genetic differences between populations in Australia compared to New Zealand. The, the, the industry has always been really interested to know the degree to which larvae from Australia travel across and seed New Zealand populations um, and we were able to show with our genetic techniques that in fact that it's probably only about two to five percent of larvae and um, that are found in New Zealand and actually come from Australia. The other really cool thing we found is that um, there seems to be a really distinct region or series of populations of rock lobsters right on the, um, the, the bottom of New Zealand, at a place called Stewart Island. Um, and the reason that that's kind of significant is we found that this population appears to produce lots of larvae that travel to um, other parts of New Zealand and seed other parts of the New Zealand uh, coast, but they don't seem to receive any larvae from anywhere else. And the reason that that's so interesting is because that's also what the mathematical model predicted that this area of Stewart Island was actually a, a source of larvae and um, but was very much what we call self-recruiting, so it was very much dependent on larvae that were produced locally. Which you can imagine, that, that seems kind of unusual that you would have a, a self-recruiting population for something where it's larvae drifts around in the ocean for, for two years. Um, and, and that's kind of one of the things that we're, we're looking at at the moment as to what the oceanographic processes might be that explain that unusual pattern.
0: How does that affect how we manage that resource?
1: This demonstrates to us those populations which are perhaps more important to the rock lobster industry. This work is actually in many ways a, a first step to, um, to helping support their management in that we've actually identified that there are genetic differences between populations and there are likely source sink population dynamics. Um, at the moment, the, um, the lobster is managed in a number of what we call cray areas, which are effectively um, um, reporting zones, if you like, around New Zealand. And there are 10 of those reporting zones but they're not based at all on the biology of the species. So the stock assessments to decide how many rock lobsters should be taken are all run based on these effectively artificial boundaries. So hopefully what this genetic information will do in the future is support the, the re-evaluation in particular of where those management boundaries are uh, and hopefully um, um, increase the ability to manage the stock more sustainably or, or continue monitoring sustainably would be a better way of saying that.
0: So currently we're not we're not that worried about the the rock lobster itself, but does this paper and the approaches used to modeling these connectivity patterns uh, teach us any lessons for for other uh, marine species and and their overfishing
1: There's a lot of interest globally in connectivity because understanding these linkages between populations is really important. If you're managing a stock, you really want to know how that stock is exchanging individuals and how that stock is being supported by individuals from other populations. So, and if you don't have that information or you're using that information incorrectly, then it does have the potential that you could, for example, have a a stock somewhere that is seeding all other stocks. And if you haven't identified that stock that's producing all the larvae, and that's the one you harvest most heavily, then it means that there will be no stocks in the future. So having this connectivity information, although it's really difficult to get um, and really expensive to get, it is really valuable in terms of some of our most important fishery species.
0: That was Dr. James Bell of Victoria University, Wellington. Next up, I spoke to Yelma Pulter from Uppsala University in Sweden. He and his team have been looking at European crows. In these birds, the all-black carrion crows and grey-coated hooded crows meet in a narrow hybrid zone. The team were interested in finding the genes responsible for the differences in coloration between these two similar species. To do this, they drew on previous work and sequenced parts of candidate genes thought to be associated with a pigmentation pathway and then looked for differences between the species. I started off by asking James, what makes colour so important anyway?
2: It's very important for communication among the animals themselves. So they communicate with that colour is being used as warning signals, as mating signals. being used for camouflage. It could be quite important, and that's one thing that we are studying in particular. It could be quite important in speciation, so the formation of, of new species.
0: Right, so it's kind of believed to be the initial steps in divergence and and, some, and you know possibly speciation.
2: Exactly, yeah. So if you have two populations of animals that uh, diverge in, in coloration, if they come back together, then they might not recognize each other anymore uh, and therefore not mate as easily with each other, and that would be uh, indeed the first step to speciation, yeah.
0: Okay, so let's hear about the species that you were looking at. They're Eurasian crows. Tell me about those.
2: These days, they're considered two different species, long been considered two subspecies. So it's the uh, carrion crow and, and the hooded crow. The carrion crow is completely black in its uh, plumage coloration, whereas the hooded crow, has most of its body feathers, a pale gray color, uh, whereas the head, uh, the wings, and the tail are all black. So it's a very kind of pied bird. And the carrion crow occurs in uh, in, in parts of Western Europe, including England, France, Spain. And then the hooded crow occurs in eastern, uh, northern Eastern and Southeastern Europe, and then they meet in the hybrid zone, including in Britain, actually, um, uh, because in Scotland, there's hooded crows. So there's a hybrid zone between them in Scotland. And then Ireland actually also has hooded crows. So they never occur together except in these uh, small and quite narrow hybrid zones.
0: So whilst they're very similar species, they're markedly different. I mean, I know them both to look at. Yeah. and So there's no doubt that there's a genetic basis behind that coloration
2: difference. Indeed, yeah, we, we are uh, yeah we are quite certain, and, and that's also what we what we observe in the hybrids, the uh, segregation patterns of the colors, uh, the intermediate colors that are being produced in the hybrids, yeah, that all uh, seems to point towards the genetic basis of the color difference, and in fact, one with rather few genes being involved.
0: So we've got the kind of Mendelian evidence of there being a genetic basis, and what you're looking at in this exactly. what you're looking at in this paper then is to find the actual genes responsible for the
2: pigmentation? That's what we tried to do in this paper. So there has been a, an earlier paper by um, researchers at Lund University in Sweden who, who sequenced uh, one very well known gene, the uh, so-called MC1R gene, um, to look if that gene was maybe uh, involved and they only looked at that gene and uh, they did so for a reason because the MC1R gene has actually been proven to be involved in coloration differences of these kinds where you have uh, one melanic form and one form that's uh, uh, much paler uh, in many cases. So there's at least a handful of examples, uh, also in birds, for example, in uh, snow geese, where it's known that a genetic difference in MC1R is actually responsible for these color differences. So this, this gene was a very obvious candidate. Moreover, it's a very small gene, so it's easy to sequence. So uh, these previous researchers had already uh, sequenced the MC1R gene, actually, in codes but then found out uh, that there were no differences in the MC1R. So they kind of crossed out that gene, and then we wanted to take it a step further and and look at many more genes because the melanogenesis pathways, which produces black color, is quite complex and it has quite a lot of genes. So we kind of made an inventory of all the genes that are likely to be involved, and then we looked those up in birds and made a selection of of kind of the the best-looking candidates among those, and then we sequenced those. So so we kind of took it from a a one-gene approach to a whole bunch of genes, that we thought might be important
0: okay so you got a handful of the the black carrying crows and a handful of the hooded crows and you looked at evidence of difference in all these candidate genes between the two
2: exactly yeah 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 so we sequenced about 20 insects of each of the species and then uh, look for differences and and then uh, what 's actually quite good for this with the crows is that they're genetically very similar, so mostly these kind of studies have been done with so called polymorphisms within species, and usually that means even within populations so you have a population of birds where you have two forms that look very different, but usually those forms actually do mate randomly uh and that 's something that you for example, see in the snow geese that I mentioned earlier uh, so these these dark and and white morphs uh, co occur and they uh, and they mate with each other. Uh, The reason that people have looked at those is that there are no other genetic differences between these these morphs, because they randomly interbreed, uh, they are not different species. So then whatever difference that you do find in in their genes is very likely to be involved, whereas if you would look at animals or birds that are genetically very different, that have many, many differences, then of course it becomes very hard to pinpoint uh, which changes might actually be responsible
0: okay and so you had this handful of candidate genes and you looked in the crows was there one stark marker that explained differences in coloration
2: no so there actually wasn't so all the all the uh all the genes had um uh amounts of divergence that were quite similar to um to the divergence that we had found in earlier markers that had nothing to do with uh coloration and uh and as i mentioned uh these differences were very very small so so the, the frequencies of different uh, alleles uh, in these genes, uh, they were very similar across the hooded uh, and the carry clothes, and the, there were no genes that showed any any uh, very obvious uh, differences between them.
0: What does that mean, then? Are you going to keep hunting for... Presumably there is a gene responsible, or genes. Are you going to keep hunting?
2: Yes, uh, we do, although uh, we are taking different approaches right now. So, so I mean, our result could could either mean that none of these genes that we tested are 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 involved, but uh, one problem is that we're actually not certain about this because we did not sequence these genes entirely. also there might be um uh, regulatory changes which are actually next to the gene and not in the gene uh, that we could easily miss. One thing that would in many cases be able to help you with this is is something called linkage disequilibrium, which means that even though some changes might not actually be involved in the coloration because they are nearby these other changes, they are in so-called linkage with those changes and you can still see the differences. So you would still see, uh, be able to see the differences uh, nearby the point where the actual mutation is and this is something you can often take advantage of. But what, uh, what we did find in our paper was that these levels of linkage of, uh, linkages are very low.
0: Across, across, all, uh, across all chromosomes?
2: Yeah, kind of. So even, even within like 1,000 uh, base pairs or something, so within the part that we sequenced, we observed that this linkage uh, uh, was very low, actually, uh, which would mean that if we only sequence one part of a gene, uh, which might stretch uh, for a number of thousands of base pairs further on, then uh, even though we might see very small differences in the part that we do sequence, the difference in the other part of the gene might actually be large. Uh, and, and, and due to the absence of linkage, we would not uh, actually observe this. So this is, uh, this is a bit of a complication, and this is why it probably wouldn't be a wise thing to continue the approach as we've done it, but uh, we need to do it even more large-scale. So uh, the things that we are doing right now, uh, or that we have been doing already for a while, is uh, both whole genome sequencing, so where we simply sequence the entire genomes of uh, a whole set of crows, uh, and also we've done uh, gene expression experiments, and that's it
0: for this month's edition of the Heredity Podcast. See you in a month for the next installment. Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well?